Welcome to the Halloween edition of The Teller in the Tale, with me, Michael Williams. <laughs> yes, it's The Teller in the Tale, celebrating Samhain, or Halloween if you will, uh, I'm Michael Williams, and we were listening to The Bogey Whale by Jack Hilton from 1934. I want to thank all of you for tuning in to Blues and Roots Radio and listening to us here. Uh, so uh, settle down, uh, settle back, and enjoy um, our macabre stories. Uh, for the first story, we go back to the 19th century, the story of Burke and Hare, uh, as told here by uh, the Scottish storyteller who now lives in uh, Calgary in Canada, the story of Birkin Hare from Callum Lycan. The resurrection men are grave robbers. In Edinburgh, it was a business. It was the most unusual business you can imagine. It was never advertised. It was never put in a post office or in a job centre. It was a rumour that spread through the streets. The anatomists teaching over 500 students a year with only two dead bodies supplied by the city. That doesn't work. Imagine 150 students slicing and dicing and chopping and garroting and skinning that body. It's going to start to get messy. Give it to another 150 students who are slicing, dicing, sawing, chopping, and what you have at the end of that is soup. That leaves a chunk of students not getting taught. So rumours spread out through the streets Bodies were needed. Men and women sitting in pubs would come up with the idea of sneaking into a graveyard. They would sneak in in the dead of night. They would find a freshly dug grave. They would be clever enough. These people weren't mindless. These people weren't uh, barbaric. They were clever thinkers. They realised that the grave had to look undisturbed, stitched together hessian sacking to put round the earth so if any fell, it could be placed back in the mound. No one would suspect a thing. Make a wooden shovel, for that makes no noise when digging at night. And once you get down to the body, you realise that you don't need to dig up the whole thing. They discovered quickly that just dig up the shoulders and the head. Then you take two fingers, stick them up the corpse's nose and drag it from the earth using its nostrils. And once you've got the body, you smuggle it through the streets to the anatomy department where you sell it for £10. Good money can be made. £10 was more than an annual wage back then to most people. So you can understand why resurrection men, grave digging was a very, very sought-after job. But two men took it a stage further. William Burke and William Hare will always go down in the annals of history as the most dastardly duo. You see, there were two Irishmen, they came across to help dig the Union Canal. But once that work was finished, they found themselves out of luck and out of pocket. Until Hare fell in with a woman who owned a lodging house. And both men ended up staying there. 
Now, disaster struck when one of the residents of the boarding house died. He hadn't paid his bills or his rates. So to recoup the loss, Birkenhare came up with the idea of carting his body to the anatomists and selling it to them. Hence, they made back their money and then some. And being two good Irishmen, they did the only thing they could do when they had a purse full of coin. They went and sat in a local tavern. And they sat in this tavern situated in the grass market of Edinburgh. And they looked out at the grass market enjoying a wee dram and a beer, thinking, we can do this. We can be resurrection men. We could dig up the dead and sell them. But the more they thought about it, the more they realised that that's a lot of hard work. Digging up dead bodies, it's dangerous. If you're caught, you could be hung. Or, if you're really unfortunate, you could be shot on the spot. So Birkin here, think long and hard, and it comes to them, wait a minute, as they look out across the busy, bustling grass market. Why go to the effort of digging up dead bodies when there's so many of them walking around waiting to happen? Birkin here never dug up a dead body in their lives. They actually became two of Edinburgh's most famous serial killers. They had a great system. They would basically see a stranger or a lonely person in a bar and they would befriend them, piling them full of booze and food, giving them the greatest party, the final supper, so to speak. Once that person was inebriated and staggering, they would invite them back to the lodging house, plying them with more drink. And when that person was close to passing out, they would strike. One of them would jump upon the poor victim, pinning him to the ground, sitting upon his chest, while the other would clamp fingers over nose and thumb under chin. The poor soul would be so drunk, so weakened, that they would just slip off to eternal sleep. Birkenhair took 17 victims using this method, which was later nicknamed Birking. But one of the great things about history is it's always being rewritten. In fact, it's being rewritten every day in the city of Edinburgh. And William Burke and William Hare's story is one of the most interesting and intriguing. They now actually believe that in a year and a half spree, that figure could be close to 80 victims, not 17. You see, William Hare was apparently a rather delicate soul. All this killing was not good for him. He, every so often, would need to leave the city and take a holiday to get over what they were doing. But Burke relished in it. He loved the kill and the hunt. He would go out by himself, it was said, picking up mothers and daughters and lonely strangers. He would be killing and Hare wouldn't even know about it. One of his most famous cases was he was out drinking and carousing and came across a rather bonny lassie. He persuaded her back to the lodging house so that he could dispatch her. But the problem was Burke was actually far too inebriated. He couldn't get the job done. So what he did is he tied her in the basement, went to his bed thinking he'll finish her off in the morning. 
but he must have had more drink than he thought he had because when he woke the next morning, he had completely forgotten about this wee lassie. And it wasn't until a few days passed where his memory was jogged and he went down to the basement remembering she was there. He saw, well, he saw not such a bonny wee lassie anymore because the rats of Edinburgh had got a hold of her and gnawed and chewed her flesh from her body. But I'm pleased to say not all was lost because he still managed to sell her to the anatomist just at a slightly discounted rate. But Burke and Hare were notorious and sadly all good things come to an end. Eventually they were caught and being such a good, honest, trustworthy friend, William Hare did the thing that only a good friend can do. He turned King's evidence he literally blamed everything on Burke. He effectively got off scot-free by saying it was all him. I had nothing to do with it. And William Burke was set to trial. And because of the atrocities they had committed, he was immediately sentenced to death. It was said that his execution was one of the most viewed in all of history. It was roughly between 25 and 35,000 people gathered at the gallows to watch this man. We strung him up and hung him to within an inch of his life. Then we took him from the gallows, barely breathing but still alive. We strapped him to a table. There'd been a wee fella standing at the side, sharpening knives all day and sticking them in a bucket of hot coals. And people were curious about this until Burke was strapped and splayed on the table. And that wee man stood up taking his sharpest, warmest knife and went to work. He was there to peel William Burke. He started to flay the living flesh from his body. Burke's screams must have filled the air and it was said that 48% of his skin was removed before he actually gave up and died. But we did take the whole skin. And his body was handed over to the anatomists. A little bit of justice was given and he was dissected. But the anatomists must have seen a bit of value in him because they took his skeleton and polished it and presented it and displayed it in Surgeon's Hall, something you can still see to this day. But what about the skin? Well, this is Edinburgh, and Edinburgh has a certain way about it. We handed that skin to a local tanner and asked them to make things from the skin. And I can only imagine the scene of that poor man turning that human flesh over and over, wondering what to do with it, and then looking at William Burke's buttocks. And it came to him. And I can only imagine the conversation with his wife. Mary, Mary, come here, darling. Have a look at this man's buttocks. Do you not think they would make a fantastic Bible? Yes, we made a Bible the holiest of holies from William Burke's arse. From his chest, we made a wallet, and from the back of his hand, we made a beautiful business card holder. The business card holder, 
and the wallet and the Bible are all on display. And what I love about the business card holder is it's gorgeous. It breaks open in two parts. It's a solid shell. It has the most exquisite golden Celtic knotwork all the way around it. And it's only when you pay close attention to this that you start to notice something oh so familiar. You start to notice the hair follicles that would have been in the back of William Burke's hand. Oh, Callum, that was pretty gruesome, the story of Burke and Hare from Callum Lycan. We're going to stay with Callum, and I should say that these uh, stories of his uh, come from his CD, Callum Lycan's Scottish Bedtime Stories, uh, which came out uh, a few years back. Um, we're going to stick with this macabre uh, uh, theme, and uh, the next uh, story that Callum uh, will tell is the most terrifying story of Edinburgh. So this is a very quick story from Edinburgh, and it's basically a little ghost story. And it revolves around a bar called Whistle Binkies, just off the Royal Mile. And Whistle Binkies is part of what is known as the underground city of Edinburgh, a subterranean series of vaults and caverns which housed people for over 60 years. And because of all the death and disturbance and all the disasters that happened in that area, it's obviously led to a few good ghost stories. My favourite, though, is about the imp. You see, the imp is what we call a cheeky ghost in Edinburgh. He's a mischievous one, a trickster ghost, as opposed to the other famous entity which appears next to him, which is called the Watcher, a silent grey figure that simply stands behind you and watches what you're doing. But the imp is infamous. He loves to play tricks and mischief, and in Whistlebinkies, the bar staff are terrified of him. His favourite trick is to leave them locked in the cellar for an unknown amount of time. They can wrench, they can kick that door, and it'll stay shut. And then without any warning, it'll simply click and swing open. The bar staff hate it. Now, one night, the bar manageress, she was finishing off the shift with her staff. And as is the way when you're working in a bar, you need to do all the housework at the end, cleaning and taking off the empties and changing the barrels and just making sure the place is ready for the next day. Now, before she started her work, she took out the remains of her lunch and sat it on the bar, a half-eaten sandwich and an orange. And then she knew... Part of her night's work was to take all the empty bottles down to the cellar and restock the bar. So down she goes, fearful for what may happen. And down there, she's always looking over her shoulder, checking the shadows as she mops and brushes and puts away the empties and restocks for the next day. And much to her delight, as she runs out of the cellar, realising that nothing has happened. Well... She carries the barrels and the beers up to the bar and she looks around to make sure her staff are still working away and everything seems fine. So she decides she's going to have a little break. She's going to eat the rest of her lunch. And that's when she heads over to the bar where she sat it and she freezes, terrified, staring at her lunch on the bar. She cannot believe what she's seeing. Because there, sitting on the bar, her orange had been p 
healed. And that's one of the most terrifying ghost stories of Edinburgh. Eight, two, seven, six, three, one. And that was the old mysteries from uh, Edinburgh's uh, Mari Campbell, along with Dave Gray and Ailey Robertson on the Bode Classas. Very interesting indeed. And that's from an album called Old Lang Syne, uh, which came out just a couple of years ago, uh, back in 2018. 
Well, we're going to continue with some stories uh, again, but uh, I want a reminder that you're listening to The Teller and the Tale uh, exclusively here on Blues and Roots Radio. Now, we're going to hear um, another story from Callum, as I said, uh, this one called The Most Unlucky Man. Brown was a fantastic resurrection man, or grave robber. By all accounts, he had made a fortune digging up corpses. But he had decided later in his career, he was going to take the easy road. He was going to do what many of them had done before and make his own bodies. But Brown shouldn't have bothered. He should have kept just digging them up. Because by the accounts, it says... On his first attempt at murder, he was caught, arrested and sentenced to death. And Brown was hung to death at the gallows in the grass market of Edinburgh. The doctor checked over his body and signed the death certificate and slammed it upon his chest. Which must have come as a shock to Brown and to the hangman when Brown sat bolt upright on the table, gasping for air with a rather reddened neck. Brown had survived the gallows. But now we have a problem. You see, the hangman only gets paid for a dead body, and his reputation is on the line if he doesn't do a good hanging. So the hangman starts to think how to get round this, and the solution is simple. He drags Brown back out to the gallows, strings him up and drops him again. And to make sure that Brown is dead, he then goes under the gallows and grabs Brown's ankles and hangs his weight off him to make sure his neck is stretched properly. And Brown is dead a second time. But our hangman is now in trouble. He's committed a crime. You see, surviving the gallows is classed as an act of God. And our hangman has just murdered a free and innocent man now. So he needs to hide the body. And what better way to hide a body in Edinburgh than to sell it to the anatomists for the old slice and dice. So he sells Brown, expecting Brown's body to be cut up and dissected and all evidence disposed of. But Brown's fate was not to be as mundane as the simple anatomy department. You see, a very famous nephew had entered Edinburgh, the nephew of the great Galvani. And Galvani had developed a process using chemical batteries and frogs. You see, he'd discovered that when you wire a frog to a battery, the muscles twitch and jump. A marvellous experiment. But Galvani's nephew had taken it further. And now our frog is named Brown. Strapped into a chair in the theatre, electrodes implanted into his muscles. The audience gathered, not a medical practice. This was a theatrical performance more. So we had lords, we had ladies and we had surgeons and doctors from all over excited to see this experiment. Well, Galvani makes the pomp and ceremony. He discusses the procedure and then with a flourish he flicks the switch and everybody's ooing and eyeing because there they're watching in front of their eyes one of Brown's hands twitching. Marvellous. 
Galvani flicks the second switch, emboldened by the response, and my goodness, they're now up on their feet. A round of applause. Bravo, bravo, they all cry, because now both of Brown's hands are twitching and jumping. This is the most amazing thing they've seen. Until the moment that Brown's head shoots up, his eyes open wide, and from his throat he emits the most blood-curdling scream you can imagine. All of a sudden, the bravos and cheers silenced. All of a sudden, people are screaming in horror, screaming and shouting, turn it off, he's alive, turn it off, he's alive. In all these years, Galvani's never had this happen. He does not know what to do. Panic fills his soul and he does the first thing that springs to mind. He grabs a scalpel from the table and runs it across the throat of Brown, sending a huge gout of arterial spray across the audience. The lords and ladies certainly getting more than they expected from this performance. Now we have people fainting, we have people vomiting, we have people screaming. The whole place is in pandemonium. And Galvani is not finished. He needs to prove that Brown was dead. So he gets the orderlies to take the body and slam it on the table, where Galvani proceeds to slice open his ribcage, saw and hack and crack open the ribs. And as quickly as he can, he dissects Brown's heart. Standing proudly, presenting the heart to the audience, he makes the boldest statement. Ladies and gentlemen, he was dead all along. It was simply the electricity that made him look as if he was alive. Which is, to be honest, quite a straightforward statement and quite believable. And it would have been believable if Galvani had not noticed the most obvious thing that was happening right in front of him. Because as he presented the heart to the audience, holding it out to prove that Brown was dead, he failed to notice that the heart was beating its last few beats. And Brown, the resurrection man, died for a third time. But Brown's story doesn't end there. Because Brown is now one of Edinburgh's most frequently spotted supernatural events. If you happen to pop into the Surgeon's Hall and you'll see some wonderful things, some of the strange and weird anatomy things that they hold there, you'll see another Resurrection Man skeleton. William Burke is on display in there. But as you're walking these hallowed halls, you may get the feeling that you're being followed or watched. You may get this chill on the back of your neck. And if you turn round, you may be fortunate enough to see Brown lumbering towards you, his eyes wide, his mouth still open in the ghastly scream, blood still pouring from his open wounds. But he's holding out his hand as if he wants to give you something. Because Brown is always wanting to give you his heart. Well, if that doesn't set you trembling, I don't know what will. That was Callum Lichen with the story of uh, the most unlucky man. 
Stories of Resurrection Men from the Days of Old Edinburgh, told by Scotland's own uh, Callum Lycan, who now resides in Calgary in Canada. And uh, if you live in Calgary, uh, look Callum up. You can uh, Google him uh, or look him up, uh, Callum Lycan, L-Y-K-A-N, uh, CallumLycan.com, and uh, you can find out more about him and his stories. Well, that's all the time we have for this uh, special Halloween. Um, I hope that uh, you've had a, a safe and pleasant and um, perhaps macabre uh, weekend. Um, but uh, winter is coming, and uh, the cold weather cold weather is uh, settling in. At least it is here in the Northern Hemisphere, uh, up here in Canada and Scotland as well. Um, so until next week, may all your once upon a time and happily ever after. And thanks for joining me here on The Teller and the Tale. I'm Michael Williams. I'll be back next week with more stories um, to entertain you with. Good night. My beloved monster and me We go everywhere together Wearing a raincoat that has four sleeves Gets us through all nasty weather She will always be the only thing Comes between me and the awful sting It comes from living in a world that's so damn My beloved monster is tough If she wants she will disrobe you but if you lay her down for a kiss Her little heart, it could explode She will always be the only thing Comes between me and the awful sting It comes from living in a world that's so damn new Turns out the light every